0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Looking out at the world today, it makes very little sense. I suppose that's why when a book comes along, like my guest Edie Madoff's Another Love Discourse, one that helps us look inward at the things that really shape us, move us, and help carry us into tomorrow then we best sit up and take notice. For a time amidst the dark days of the pandemic, there was a precariousness about life itself. When we felt more confident coming out of that fear, it gave us equal uncertainty about our most intimate relationships and about ourselves. It opened a kind of Pandora's box, letting out grief and fear and insecurities. Some of that is the stuff of Edie's novel. Edie of is the author of Kingdom of the Young, a collection of short fiction, as well as the novels Lola California, Crawl Space, and The Far Field. Her work has been recognized with numerous awards and prizes. She's a senior editor at the journal Conjunction and teaches in the MFA program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. It is my pleasure to welcome Edie Medev back to this program to talk about her newest work, Another Love Discourse. Edie, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Jeff, thank you so much for having me. It's such a joy and grace always to get to hear and talk with you.
0: Well, it's It's great to have you here. One of the things that, that is immersed in, in this story, and, and there's no way to escape it, and it's during the time you wrote it, is the pandemic. Talk a little bit about how that impacted you and how it works its way into another love discourse, first of all.
1: Yes, what a good question. I Began this book truly as a survival mechanism. So many of us had that feeling of collective unhusking when the pandemic broke. And there was a feeling of, you know, why not just go for broke? Why don't we just head for, you know, what is true in our human relationships? Let's see what our priorities are. It was a collective sifting of priorities. And in my case, I was living... You know, in Massachusetts, um, suddenly there were seven to ten beings in my house. It's complex. Some were animal and some were others, I can explain. Um, and I was teaching um, a course called Confessions and Rants in, at UMass Amherst MFA, where I'm a, I teach it, um, creative writing. And I had this unusual pedagogy that I've evolved over some years, which is that um, I Collect maybe 50 books and I summarize them for each course. And then I, on the first day, I go out of the class for 15 minutes and I say to the class, okay, you guys need to be stakeholders in your knowledge. Choose the books we're going to discuss. We're going to nine to 10 or whatever for the semester and I'll come back. And to my great blessing, good fortune, the class chose Bart's A Lover's Discourse. Then the pandemic hit, we were suddenly, you know, on, you know, all pixelated screens to one another. it was really quite intimate. It reminded me, I, I did not live through this time, but it felt as if it were the early days of the Vietnam War, as if we were gathering around the computer hearth to get warmth from talking about a book. And this is really quite an unusual book, uh, A Lover's Discourse by Roland Barthes, the French 60s, 70s literary theorist because he breaks it up with these little chapter headings. So just to survive, I would go out to this shed out back and write the name of one of his chapter titles and use it as a literary prompt to write to and from what was happening around me. Now, this book, another love discourse, my book that I that just came out, it is it's not a, it's not a memoir, but the nouns resemble my life, the verbs are you know quite different the adjectives are quite different and that is to not only protect the innocent but also to give me a feeling of you know freedom and creative play
0: one of the things about it is is there seems to be and and you capture this in a way almost a second wave of what happened during the pandemic that, that at first there was this precariousness about life itself and everybody was terrified and 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 that sparked a lot of introspection in some respects. Then once it became clear that that probably wasn't going to happen, it there was there was kind of a hangover from it, which in many ways seemed to have a more profound impact than 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 the first wave itself. Yes, I love
1: that you say that. It's so interesting. I there's this. Um, section in the beginning of the book um, where I name exactly what you're talking about um, with it felt to me as if we were pulling a ripcord you know of a parachute in that first shock and we were all just hanging on and then now we are forever going to be in this float you know we're not quite sure if we're going to ever hit the ground again in the same way if the ground exists who is with us in the float you know all these Former rules about time and space and communion are no longer the same.
0: Probably will never be the same again. I mean, I think there was a feeling early on that it'll all be back to normal, but not to be the case.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, what happens in that kind of space for each of us? You know, we start making different agreements and vows inside of ourselves and with the people we love and with new people You know, we can abide more easily by certain things and other things just no longer work. You know, our mortality collectively is somehow so much more at hand than it was three or four years ago. And, you know, it is true. You know, people have often said this thing about America, which, you know, we can question or not. But, you know, that we it's kind of this, you know, that we have the psyche of, you know, like a two year old you know, kind of at that bullying, cheerful, lovable, but you know, aggressive, you know combo. That's the particular toddler mix. And you know, I feel like we just had this collective leap into, you know, maybe more kind of gloom of, let's say, certain twelve-year-olds. You know, it just feels as if we are making different agreements, even nationally, for better or for worse. And. You know, I, we are all so affected by these new agreements. So I, to, for my, my own personal vow right now is I'm just trying to, you know, I, I, I talk about it in the book, but, you know, I had long ago noticed that the happiest, the happiest people I knew, um, you know, even Holocaust survivors or, you know, anyone who's been through tremendous trauma um, seem to have made a true choice. And this does not mean doing a kind of spiritual bypass where they do not experience the lows of life, but really seem to make a choice to savor the joys, savor the strawberry. You know, see the, the 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 flavor of each day, be in the moment with the people with whom they're speaking, and as much as I can, because I realized before the pandemic that so much of my life was a kind of a forward lurch, always to an end goal. In a way, the pandemic stripped us of that possibility you know as as much as it had been before
0: and part of why it did that I suppose and and maybe not all by itself other things were were percolating in, in the world at the same time is that it took away the linear order of things and it created more chaos which forced us to look at things differently
1: yeah what an interesting thing to say it it's as if you know we always like to believe we are, we have full agency. And I do believe, you know, right now, this moment, I I was just mentioning to you, I mean, this task of going through my mother's tremendous trove, my late mother's trove of photos and having to choose which are to be thrown away and, you know, so on. But we all, it's really bringing home to me this basic question, which is how much do we each get to write the story of our lives? And the way that you know, we look back, you know, as we know now, these studies of the brain that confirm that memory each time becomes an active uh, gesture by the brain to rewrite a story. Anytime we go back and remember something, we're, we're creating a new story in some way in the brain. And for me, um, writing this book, I, I also was just mentioning to you um, that I had neurological Lyme from a tick bite right, back east. And... It froze half my brain. You know, it's coming back. But I felt that I was really writing against mortality. And the great freedom of that is the choice of writing the story you want to live, you know, or bring bring in to summon in the memories that you want to savor. And so, yeah, each of us right now has more of a responsibility. I feel this is what the pandemic did in the, you know, you're saying we suspended our conventional assignation of time and space and so on, everything, there's no linear order. So it's really much more one of these, it's it almost sounds very American the way I'm about to phrase it, but you know, how do you, how do you live your best life now, given the limited resources, you know, how and it's also very much a Californian question. You know, you're here in these hills, you know, are you going to find gold? Are you going to, um, How is how is it all going to work for you? You know, Um, so that's what I think the opportunity of this crisis has been in large part. How do we write the best life we can find given
0: limitations? The overlay of that perhaps is this fear that that maybe it won't work out the way we imagined. And I think that's the part that that really is is the new element for everyone.
1: Right. Right, and then, how do you savor the strawberry nonetheless? how do you find how how do you surrender the vision of paradise and how do you say, okay, and yet there's this low hanging fruit that I can just have you know how how do you how do you find meaning? I mean one thing that I've always thought about how people find meaning and fulfillment in their lives it's something I often say to people who want to write, but all meaning comes from two points sort of rubbing up against each other. So it could be two points in time or two people or a person in a place or a person in an ideal or value. And, you know, in our current moment, the way that we need to find meaning, it, we just are really trying to make sure that whatever we're attaching ourselves to is something that we actually, in our interior, care about deeply. You know, so, so much is getting chucked aside How do we each day find a way to focus on the things that really matter? And yet also not, you know, I mean, then, you know, there are the bills to pay and the calls to answer and the logistics of life. And how do
0: we also somehow find some way to savor? You teach students at UMass Amherst. Is it different for a younger generation that doesn't come to all of this with the same baggage that, that the rest of us, that the boomers do?
1: So, I will say I'm supposedly generation X in the sense that we were supposed to be the nihilistic generation that didn't care about anything that grew up under, you know, uh, you know, various presidents. Um, uh, My experience. okay, so maybe about five to seven years ago, I began really feeling quite hardened by a very intense activism in the sense of, okay, we're dancing on the brink of apocalypse. How do we gather together as a kind of, you know, you know, some kind of consortium. How do we find a way to put our problems aside and make a change? Okay. Now, right now, the generation that is perhaps, you know, I don't know, I'm going to say like 27 to 34, um, that, okay, so that, that generation still has some idealism. The generation that's more, I would say, 15 to 24, um, while I'm seeing a very beautiful, intense political activism in the, you know, let's say 15 to 20-year-olds, old, is also a feeling from the 20 to 24-year-olds of complete animity, like, what can we believe in? You know, a lot of these kids, You know, in their lives, you know, they've seen school shootings and they've seen, um, you know, climate change and they've seen the pandemic and they've seen all sorts of things that are just not making them find. So what I'm actually seeing is that sometimes they are they feel like the old souls of the boomers in some way, you know, the ones who really believe that they're, they're they are only holding on to one or two ideals. And everything else seems kind of um, disposable and sad. I don't mean to be bleak about it. I'm actually seeing some great signs of hope in this younger generation coming up. Like from there, nihilism is growing a kind of, you know, there'll be a very strong
0: flower. May take a while, however. Yeah, yeah, it's complex. Talk a little bit about the use of, of images in another love discourse, because they're an important part of it, too.
1: Right. So, you know, one thing I wanted to do with this novel is I had been feeling for a while, you know, I'd written this other work where I felt like I was like a a chess player working at a remove, you know, that I knew how to write a novel and take the reader on a certain journey. But I wanted to do something that turned me inside out and turned the form inside out. So I didn't begin with this a priori idea like I'm going to write a novel that, you know, explodes form. But it seemed in a in a fractured time to have a fractured form invites in more intimacy. My real goal was to bring the reader by the hand every step of the way and to really focus, I think our attention span is so different now, and I really just wanted to have that intimate journey with the reader. So the photos serve as punctuation. Um, they are of they, they most of them. I, I took a few and gave them to my friend. I'll, I'll tell you who she is. She's kind of like this wild outsider artist who lives along Highway 5 in the desert above LA um, or near Valencia. Cecile Boutier, this wild Dutch woman living in a huge kind of decommissioned compound. It's not quite outsider art, but she has a kind of outsider art sensibility, and her photos are so strikingly beautiful. And so as I was beginning to write, she's, she's think, 69, and this is a, quite an active artist and ready to be discovered. As I was writing, I asked her if she, if she would contribute some photos, and sometimes I would send her a photo and say, can you doctor it? Um and she just is magic. And so they serve as kind of ironic commentary on the text. And they also give the reader in this intimacy dance I was trying to create in this book, a, a sense of visual pause. And, you know, I also wanted the reader to have this quality of, you know, there's this wonderful book by Julio Cortazar, Hotscotch, which where people get to choose their own trajectory, sort of a choose their own venture. And I wanted people to be able to pick up this book and put it down at any point in the middle or the beginning and they would get it, but but they could also it in a linear fashion, like, as you said, the pandemic time from A to Z and they would get the propulsive narrative of a novel. So I wanted to kind of reflect in some way, our time of the pandemic with its changed sense of time and loss and love and everything like that. And the photos for me are, uh, are, you know, I, I have this background in the visual arts a bit, and there, because it's a collaboration, it feels as if it reaches out to this greater community of her and others who are in the visual arts. It creates more of a dance in the text.
0: That's my hope. It also connects us to it in, in, in a fundamental way. I mean, it, it gives us an opportunity to connect in, in different kinds of ways, essentially. I'd be curious, what was your
1: experience of any one photo or
0: how did you connect? Your description of them as punctuation seems absolutely right because it, it slows you down in a way. Which right. Which in this world today is a good thing.
1: Yes. You know, it, when you say that, it makes me think of this thing when I am studying painting that they would say, you know, let's say in Renaissance painting, when you see the fold, you know how you always see the drapery, in all these paintings, so much drapery. But the idea is that those folds allow space for metaphysical contemplation. So maybe the photos are the folds in the Renaissance painting. Maybe
0: I wanted them to do that. There's not enough today. I mean, metaphorically and and in reality in some places, there's not enough of that white space.
1: (laughs) Yes, accurate, right. Completely, and that was also, I mean, speaking of white space, so another goal I had was to include the white space of the page and sometimes use prose-like blocks of prose, and sometimes not quite poetry, but white space so that the reader wouldn't get stuck inside a sentence, but would have a chance to contemplate within the white space of the page. So that again, it was a kind of engagement with the reader.
0: Edie of her new book is another love discourse. Edie, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Such a
1: pleasure, Jeff. I really feel grateful to you and the community you create. We need, we need people like you out there. Ah,
0: well, thank you very much.
1: Thanks.